So as a problem solver, you need problems to solve. And I couldn't Antigua's think of anywhere with more problems <laughs> than Antigua. So it's like a goldmine for me. <laughs> Hello, podcast fans, and welcome to another week of Grassroots Radio. I'm your host, Jenny Bird, bringing you the very first episode in our Tech Entrepreneurship Series. Starting the series off with Sven James, who is a serial entrepreneur, probably best known for his role in creating the ticketing app and also his role in the creation of Silicon Dadly, which is, of course, Antigua's premier tech startup and tech enthusiast community. So if any of these things are within your sphere of interest, this is an episode you will not want to miss. Before we dive into the interview with Sven, I just have one quick plug on behalf of the New Grassroots, and that is about our National Youth Survey, which we will be closing very soon so we can start to bring you all our very fun analyses. But in the meantime, if you're hearing this and you haven't yet filled out the survey, it only takes about 10 minutes, please head over to thenewgrassroots.com Click the link right on the front page, which will take you directly to the survey. Thank you so much to the over 115 people who have filled out the survey so far. You have earned our undying love. And now here's Sven James to tell you who he is. All right, so my name is Sven James. I'm 33 years old. Um, I am a software engineer by profession. Um, I'm a serial entrepreneur and an AI enthusiast. An enthusiast, you say, but you've also <laughs> you've actually done a master's in artificial intelligence, right? That's right. So I have a bachelor's degree in software engineering from Concordia University in Montreal, Canada, and then I went on to do well. Technically, it's called a evolutionary and adaptive systems master's degree and so it actually looks at um, something called artificial life which is mm. totally different from artificial intelligence certainly um, it's more of a bottom-up approach than a top-down approach so mm-hmm. um, with AI you see a lot more um, persons taking the most complex organism on the planet human beings and trying to uh, piecemeal uh, reproduce various aspects of their intelligence, whereas artificial life looks at simpler organisms and trying to uh, discover their emergent properties and you know evolve and emerge intelligence there therefrom. Well, very interesting stuff. And so you said that you're a serial entrepreneur. The project that you're most known for is the ticketing app, which is very famous now. <laughs> very famous. You, you flatter us. Um, but yes, so um, I've been back in Antigua now for about just over, well, just under six years, sorry. And, you know, we gave it a go with a few different ideas. Um, I think the first was we were trying to kind of have an ESPN of Antigua. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, you know, a website where you could uh, pretty much just get basketball scores. Um, we looked into freelance development. So kind of just doing bespoke systems for various clients. Um, you know, we looked at different types of databases that we could then monetize and sell to businesses. Uh, but eventually, uh, we stumbled upon the idea for ticketing, implemented it, and it stuck. And so that's pretty much been my focus for the last few years. You say we when you're describing yeah. how ticketing came about. So who are the other um, individuals involved in this project? And can you tell me sort of, how you guys found each other and started working together. Sure. Um, There's a pitch version of the story which has been floated around, which isn't actually true, which is that we all met in the line waiting to buy tickets for a fest locally. Ah. Uh, (laughs) As as nice as that sounds in a pitch, it's not actually (laughs) the truth. So um, when I moved back to Antigua, um, a friend of mine uh, introduced me to a friend of his, um, his name was Devin Jeffrey, um, and we kind of got to talking. We both just graduated from computer science degrees, and um, one thing led to another. We both essentially had 
similar ideas of what we could do in terms of ticketing. And so we kind of got together to start drafting some things together. And then very shortly thereafter, another friend of mine was speaking to a friend of his at breakfast bed, and they had a similar conversation. So he brought it back to me and said, you know, should I tell him about what you guys are working on? Would you like to include someone else? And that was Ashton Theron, mm-hmm. um, who then also joined the team. Uh, so the three of us were moving forward for a few months uh, when we caught wind of another entrepreneur slash developer uh, slash designer, Mackenzie Drew, uh, who was working with a team of his own on something similar. Um, after some futile attempts to merge the team, um, Mackenzie eventually parted ways uh, with them and then uh, we joined the forces and the core ticketing team was born. Did you guys like have an existing relationship beforehand or was this kind of the project that brought you all together? So Devin, I didn't know at all before um, having been introduced him to a mutual friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ashton, I knew from my childhood, but he was a bit older. So he was my um, childhood best friend's neighbor. So I knew him mm-hmm. growing up, but we weren't necessarily in touch before this project and Nikenji we went to grammar school together uh, but since then had had very little contact so the project definitely brought us all a lot closer together than we were before. And so for you personally when did your journey into technology really start? Was this something that you always knew you wanted to be doing or did that come kind of later? Well I always knew that I wanted to uh, build or create things Um, you know I played with Legos I'm sure a lot of kids do still. Uh, as I was little, um, I liked to cook from a very young age. Um, I had little electronics kits, but there was this common theme of, of creation in kind of all the things that I found interesting. Um, at first, I wanted to be an architect, actually. Um, that, you know, is probably would have been what I would have said if you asked me what I want to be when I grew up when I was, you know, eight, nine, ten. Mm-hmm. Um, one day I was uh, playing by a friend, funny enough, the same friend who introduced me to Devin at the start of this um, ticketing right. story. And he had one of those old VTech laptops. I don't know if I'm showing my age or if any of you listeners remember <laughs> you these. You're showing a little but bit. <laughs> <laughs> they they I'm were. The same age, they, so whatever. <laughs> okay, perfect. Does that ring a bell to you? I don't know. Um, they, they weren't like Windows laptops or anything like that. They had like various little applications pre-installed so you could do calculus, you could do algebra. And uh, this, in, this VTech laptop in particular had a programming application. And, you know, I wrote like a simple program that said, hello world or something like that. And that caught my fascination so much that I, at that moment, I pretty much knew that's what I wanted to do. And so um, kind of every step along the way has been in pursuit of that ever since. I guess, what other projects are you currently involved in besides the ticketing apps? You mentioned that you're a serial entrepreneur, which means you're doing <laughs> a number of other things. So what else do you have on your plate at the moment? Um, I have another small business um, called Kaiser Creation. Um, it's essentially uh, the kind of freelance arm of what I've been doing. So we do various projects uh, among them. We've done a database to register um, gender-based and sexual violence here in Antigua. Um, and we're actually also rolling out the solution in Trinidad this year. Um, we've also done like a registration system for the Antigua Charter Yacht Meeting. Um, we've done myriad websites from like the Department of Environment, the Heritage Key, um, and other smaller applications. Um, in terms of, of um, Outside of entrepreneurship, I also do teach. So I teach a few courses at the Antigua State College in the evening, um, an introductory computer course as well as an internet marketing course. And I'm also involved with the Silicon Dadley Tech Group, um, which is essentially a technical professionals and enthusiasts um, association, um, which aims to kind of bring together Antigua's tech community and give them a unified voice in terms of, you know, shaping both the industry and society more broadly. Um, and then I, I also do have little hobby projects, nothing that's necessarily going to become a business. I mean, my kind of uh, modus operandi is do something cool 
And if it sticks, make a business out of it. It doesn't sound like you're a guy with a lot of spare time. So I'm pretty fascinated <laughs> as to how you're <laughs> building little hobby projects on the side of all this other stuff. Um, yeah, um, it, it is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great. It's great that you can be so productive. So Silicon Dadly, very interesting project, very much needed in Antigua and Barbuda. So mm. tell me how that sort of came about and what are the current activities that you guys are actually putting on? Again, when I came back, um, I'd been overseas almost 10 years and something I'd kind of gotten used to was, you know, monthly meetups of various tech groups. So in every city I'd lived in, um, you know, you got together with a couple guys and girls and, you know, talked about code, came together to maybe create some projects, learn things from one another. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a nice way to kind of not only um, socialize, but build on your skill set and share what you, what you knew with others. Um, and I found that there wasn't anything necessarily like that here. Mm-hmm. So uh, Silicon Dadley actually began as every person that I met that was even remotely interested in technology. Um, we pretty much said, why don't you come out? We started at the Runway 10 Cafe. We do go out there once a month and kind of just have drinks and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, have a chat with one another. Um, out of that, um, we try to kind of formalize the group so we registered as a friendly society. Um, we've been slightly dormant in that regard in the last three months or so, but um, what we had been putting on were uh, was a speaker series in which we would get uh, speakers primarily from Antigua to talk to our group about different topics ranging from cryptocurrencies um, to e-commerce to uh, even proposal writing. Um, you know, essentially everything related to tech and entrepreneurship. Um, we'd also put on a few classes. So we did an app development course with, I think, one of your previous guests, Adrian Edwards yes. of uh, Leo Technologies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, kind of just as a way to not only meet and network, but also, um, you know, share knowledge with Steve. Um, you know, plans also included things like a demo camp, um, at which persons could come and demonstrate projects that they've been working on at home in their basements or living rooms or wherever and link them with the business community and see if there's any interest from an investment perspective, although uh, we have not yet uh, staged our first edition of that. Cool. So can you think of some examples of the kind of projects that people are working on just in their basement and it doesn't really have necessarily that much visibility? Um. Well, I guess I can speak in the abstract because one thing I found is people here are very guarded about their ideas. And that is actually something we are trying to kind of get out of because at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, to be honest, ideas are a dime a dozen. It's really the execution and the team behind an idea um, that makes a successful enterprise. Um, And investors will tell you that as well. Very often they're investing in the team, not the idea. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, they're... There's things like, for example, there's classified apps. Um, well, you know, the Pocket Antigua app. Um, yeah. So I've seen different variations of that in development. Um, there's, you know, food delivery. Um, a few members of the group um, are, are trying to um, kind of enter that space. Um, there is There are members who are working on, I believe, a solution for the sargassum seaweed problem. Mm-hmm. So an early warning system for the mm-hmm. sargassum seaweed problem. Um, trying to think off the top of my head, there's, there's been attempts to make Amazon-type applications, um, financial applications, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, financial applications. So something that's uh, rolling out um, is this digital EC currency in the OECS region. And so, um, one second, sorry. Uh, in the OECS region, and so uh, persons are trying to capitalize on that early and see how they can enter the cryptocurrency space and provide mobile solutions for the unbanked and underbanked population, uh, which is quite large in this part of the world. For sure. Amazing. So by putting together this, you know, very originally informal group of people meeting up, you've now created essentially Antigua's tech startup ecosystem. So I'm wondering, like... What are some of the challenges that you've met with along the way in regards to 
either setting up Silicon Dadly or even when you were trying to launch ticketing and bring it to the level that it is right now? What are some of the kind of issues that you're running up against? Well, I guess I'll start with ticketing. Um, as you mentioned, Silicon Dadly being an informal grouping, um, getting you know a bunch of people in a WhatsApp group was not too difficult. Um, coming out of that can sometimes be challenging. So oh, yeah. um, turning, turning digital conversations into tangible action, mm-hmm. I think, is a challenge for many a group. Uh, and I guess that's something we're still working to solve. Me too. Um, in, yeah, <laughs> with, the, with the new grassroots group, yes. uh, sure you have similar <laughs> challenges. Um, but in terms of ticketing, um, we encountered myriad problems. Um, coming back, I mean, the very first one is, I suppose, a lack of uh, available capital for these type of new age enterprises. Mm-hmm. So c- capital does exist. Um, for more traditional business models, um, you know, things that, that kind of occupy the physical space a lot more, import, export, retail, that kind of thing. Um, and it, it is challenging still to get funding in those spaces, but it's especially so in the digital mm-hmm. space. Um, yeah. A lot of, especially from the traditional institution. Um, just the forms you have to fill out and the documents you have to submit oftentimes aren't even applicable to an online business. And so you can see that there's, there's nothing... No, no machinery kind of geared towards. Yeah, uh, I don't really know how to e- evaluate like the viability of that kind of business. Co- correct, you know, and they're asking you for assets, and if you tell them, well, our asset is our software, is our code, um, they're just not hearing it. How do they value that? Right. So um, that's one challenge. Uh, we we face challenges even just being able to process um, transactions online. So being able mm-hmm. essentially to, to have someone pay with a Visa or MasterCard and have that settled to an account here in Antigua. Um, we initially started off with PayPal, um, but that presented the challenge. So as soon as we were able to, we were able to create a relationship with a bank here locally and be able to process transactions um, directly here. Um, another challenge uh, that we often find is uh, a lack of developers. So um, there are a lot of IT professionals in Antigua. Um, a lot of them specialize more so in networks. Um, so, and it kind of makes sense when you think about it because you have digital and flow. Uh, you have other large companies, and, and these they all need network engineers. They all need IT personnel, um, the hospital, et cetera. And so a lot of people have trained themselves for these opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a company like ours, uh, what we really need is coders, people who can just write software. And we found that um, those skill sets are lacking in, in the population here. Um, so we've had to, on occasion, uh, work with developers outside of Antigua, but it would absolutely be our preference to, to work with people here. Um, we have been fortunate enough to be able to have a few interns who we've been able to train, and they're based here, and we're able to work with them now. But that has been uh, a bit of a uphill climb. Um, there's also just, um, you know, our age group is quite open to the adoption of new technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you look at the populace as a whole, there's still to today a lot of resistance, a lot of people saying, you know, I want a physical product. I want a physical ticket in my hand. I don't want something on my phone. There's this kind of mistrust that, you know, the phone is going to eat my money. It's going to lose my ticket um, when the opposite is true. It's, it's more safe, uh, you know, on the digital realm than physically right. because it can't actually just disappear the way a physical ticket could be lost or destroyed. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, we've, um, well, I mean, like I say, for each of those challenges, you know, for the, for the banking situation, we just kind of plugged away at it until we got a relationship. For the lack of um, developers here, we tried to train, you know, some ourselves, at least to, to a degree where they can contribute. Um, and in terms of this adoption of technology, we've kind of come up with a parallel solution to the app whereby persons can purchase tickets. Um, physically at stores across the country using our express card technology. Uh, and they can use cash as opposed to the credit cards um, if they feel more comfortable with that payment option. Okay. Can you say a bit about a bit more about how the, the physical ticket purchasing thing works through the app? Because I don't think I even realized that was an option. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, 
So essentially, um, through the Express Card system, we have four outlets across the island at present, um, Townhouse Megastore, Selectstar Gaming, Northside Easy Grab, and Island Photo. Um, if someone has an Express Card, it's basically small plastic card. It's uh, enabled with NFC technology, so near-field communication. So it can be read and read, uh, read, read and written to by an appropriate um, device. Uh, they simply take it to the store. They ask, the, the attendant at the store for tickets to whatever event they're looking for. The attendant will take their card, um, take the cash, and then put the tickets that they've asked for on that card. Uh, on the day or night of the event, they simply bring the card with them and tap on one of our uh, mobile scanning devices to enter the event. So it works a lot like if anyone's taken the metro or the subway overseas or a bus, yeah. and they have these kind of reusable travel cards. It works a lot like that. Right. In Toronto, it's the Presto card. The Presto card. They, yeah. It was Opus in Montreal. Okay. <laughs> okay. And you, okay, controversial question. <laughs> you said you lived abroad for 10 years. Um, yeah. Part of that you were studying, but you also have some experience working abroad. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest cultural difference between working in your field in a bigger country, and then coming back to Antigua? I think one thing that I can honestly say, um, having worked overseas, is there are a lot more persons in the field, a lot more experienced persons. There are people who've been in the field, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, and in my first job, I had a really good mentor, um, and he really took me under his wing, kind of said, you know, everything you learned in university, you're going to probably forget now, and I'll teach mm -hmm. you how to really, you know, work in this field. Um, Coming back here, even though I felt like I was still quite young and inexperienced in the field, um, I was then suddenly thrust into this mentorship role, even though I felt I still had so much to learn because there weren't, you know, even though there were people my age doing the same thing, there are very few people who've been doing this um, for, for a, long, a long time. You know, there's a handful. I'm not going to say there are none, but they're, they're really far and few between. Um, so I, I think that general culture, um, there are similarities, though. I think the views of persons not in the field, of the field, tend to be the same wherever I've gone. You know, it's for nerds. Um, a lot of people think it's, it's mainly, you know, for men. So women sometimes are a bit reticent of entering the field because, you know, and it can, it can be hostile to them, um, admittedly. Um, so, so kind of stereotypes uh, that exist are common between the two. Uh, compensation would be another huge difference. So, you know, in, in Canada or in England, um, software engineers are highly coveted. Um, mm -hmm. you know, you are commanding salaries on par with, you know, other established professors, law, medicine, and so on. Yeah. Whereas, you know, here, that industry to that level just doesn't exist. Um, you know, if you're, if you're looking to make a ton of money, law and, Medicine are still the ways kind of to go. Um, software engineers are mostly self-employed here and kind of just going from client to client, month to month to make ends meet. Um, so that may actually be the single biggest difference. It's kind of the status of the profession um, and the compensation given to it. So why exactly did you decide to sacrifice your earning <laughs> potential abroad and come back to Antigua where things are a little bit harder and try to make your way here? Right. Well, um, so yeah, I get that question a lot. And I always like to say as an as a engineer uh, generally, a software engineer specifically, you're a problem solver. Um, so as a problem solver, you need problems to solve. And I couldn't Antigua's think of anywhere with more problems <laughs> than Antigua. So it's like a goldmine for me. <laughs> and um, uh. from, that, from that perspective, um, that kind of, kind of sealed my decision. But I mean, I've always had a desire to give back. I, I mean, I've lived in Canada, England, and I spent a little time in Germany as well. And especially with the latter, you kind of look around and feel like, well, everything's already solved. It, it almost feels like, you know, I could contribute here, I could make great money, and I'd kind of just be making people whose lives are pretty good and comfortable even better. Or I could go somewhere where, you know, people could really use a, a bit of a boost 
and you know make more radical more more of a radical difference even if it does you know involve some personal sacrifice but in the end that just gives me more satisfaction and so that was kind of the motivation thing coming back yeah that's back. really admirable even though it started off sounding kind of shady yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I, i i brought it back so how do you think that you're using your knowledge of ai artificial intelligence or artificial life in your current work well i suppose that's the the big shame of uh of the current status of the industry here is that I very seldom get to, to touch that part of my training. But uh, what I can say is um, artificial intelligence is very much built on data. And a lot of the innovations we're seeing today are not some breakthroughs in new algorithms or new techniques that didn't exist since the 70s. It's the fact that we now have, you know, billions of terabytes of data available to us on every decision everyone makes right. due to smartphones and always connected devices. Um, so I kind of look at it as a two-phased approach in Antigua and in the Caribbean in general. We're still kind of in a data gathering phase. So we're still getting systems online. We're still getting persons connected to the internet, uh, getting them comfortable using these types of technologies. Um, once we have that data available to us, both through artificial and real intelligence will then be able to make decisions that improve people's lives uh, effectively. So I think a lot of the training that I have specifically will come into play more maybe a decade down the line um, when we have that data collected and can start acting upon. Okay. That was actually going to be one of my questions. Like over the next mm. decade or so, where do you see like the biggest opportunities for AI in the Caribbean? Yeah, um, well, I guess you have to look in, into our biggest industry in the region, which is tourism. Um, and that is one industry that does a great job at collecting data. Um, but a lot of the data can still be locked in silos. So there's not um, necessarily an open data culture where data is freely shared between agencies, either due to reluctance or just because we don't have the ability to share it. And I think once that data sharing comes into play, Uh, we'll be able to, to exploit it to hopefully optimize and improve our destination. Um, I think another industry that can really benefit from data and artificial intelligence is agriculture. Um, everything from, from the weather conditions to the water supply to what crops to plant when and where on the island can be greatly facilitated if we you know, collect data and, and make empirical decisions. And I mean, artificial intelligence isn't really intended to replace people. It's just when you have such a wealth of information, um, it's intangible for any person to go through it all, retain it all, and make mm -hmm. comparative decisions based on it. So artificial intelligence is, is supposed to kind of highlight, hey, these are the pieces of information which might be the most relevant, the most pertinent. You can make a decision now between three options rather than a million, because I've, I've eliminated you know, the 999,000, which, which don't make sense. Right. So it enhances our ability to make um, good decisions by doing a lot of the heavy lifting. That's exactly the, the kind of grunt work, as it were. Right. And I guess there's a lot of opportunities for that, even just economically, right? Like we tend to make decisions based on, I don't know, I guess kind of based on how a set of individuals feel how something's going to work out for them, especially if I think about, you know, politics it tends to yeah. be a bit, okay, well, this seems like a good idea and I came up with it, so I'm going to push for it to be done. Meanwhile, right. there isn't really the analysis done about how does this affect your tourism industry? How does this affect mm -hmm. your education system? etc. So yeah, taking like a broader scope based on all of that data that hopefully we'll have at some point. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I mean, in the absence of data, um, you know, we're left to, to make decisions using our gut, using emotion, using political affiliation. And, you know, I'm not saying that data is the only consideration. There's still a human factor. And that's why AI can't make that final decision mm -hmm. because you do need a human at the end of the day to say, yes, maybe these numbers look better, but this is going to help more people or, you know, do, do less bad, essentially. Um, but data can only, you know, if, if not 
not only serve as the basis of decision making, but also help us to validate the decisions that we've made. Um, I think this is just a very small example, but I've been in a lot of debates over it. Uh, they've recently installed what seems like hundreds of speed bumps in Antigua. And yeah, yeah the, the, the proposed objective is to reduce collisions, reduce speeding. Um, I tried to actually see if I could find any data on where collisions are happening. Um, and if the placement of these speed bumps was based on that at all. Um, you know, in my just driving around, I feel there's other reasons for these collisions from, you know, people avoiding potholes or cars mm -hmm. parked in no parking zone or pedestrians not having sidewalks to walk on. Um, and, you know, it feels like there's a million different solutions to this problem. And the fact that they've kind of chosen that, it, it just felt like a spurious decision. And I was interested to know what the motivating factors behind it were. But that's the kind of thing that with data, if we're not going to use it to make decisions, we can at least use it to hold people accountable for the decisions that they make. Yeah, that was a really good example. So do you think that there is like a cultural aspect? I mean, apart from not having the infrastructure in place and not having all the data being collected, do you think there's a cultural aspect that's kind of blocking or creating challenges to us kind of moving in this direction at a quicker pace? No, absolutely. Um, we definitely, I mean, it's not all a bad thing. We, we mm -hmm. are a more slow-paced society. We're not necessarily just moving forward for the sake of moving forward. And I do really appreciate the different pace of life here. So I don't want to sound overly critical of it. Um, but we do have an, a, a tendency to be very suspicious of anything new. Um, and sometimes to our detriment. Um, I'm not saying we can't make you know, uh, we can't have discussions about things, but very often it feels like those discussions are even shut down. Um, the question is how to change that type of culture. I don't, I'm going to sound like I'm beating a dead horse. They always say it starts in schools, it starts with education, it starts with, with teaching kids. And there are programs um, that are trying to, to kind of, you know, teach kids code. Um, there's, uh, I think next month they're having the third edition of something called Dadly Hack which is an initiative from the UN Ops. I can't remember what that right. stands for, but one of the arms of the UN. And a lot of young people have becoming, become involved in it. Kind of, um, it kind of allows them to get a feel for what it's like to, to, to work with technology to solve problems within our region. Um, I think also we have a habit of focusing on the negatives of technology. And I'd be the first to admit that there are definitely negatives with, with modern consumer technology. Um, but that doesn't mean all technology is immediately bad. Um, I think something else probably that even as technologists we could do better is show people how these technologies can actually improve their day-to-day -day life. Because it's one thing to say it, but if you can actually show, look, if you do this, if you can go to a farm and say, if you use this, you're going to have twice the yield and you're going to make this much more money next year. You know, why wouldn't they do it? You just kind of need to speak a language that, that people understand rather than just appearing to be, you know, this brightly educated person who's trying to force feed people solutions. For sure. So, okay, I might be in a bit of a bubble when it comes to technology because I don't very often hear people talking about the negatives. So what would be some of those negatives to modern consumer technology as you've described it? I mean, I, you, you'll hear discussions, of course, about, about social media, um, what it does to people, especially young people, in terms of um, unrealistic expectations of life, in terms of um, kind of hampering their ability to communicate, say, in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't have the literature in front of me. I've read articles here and there, and I'm sure there's some truth to it, um, you know, uh, always if you take a platform like Instagram, for example, and you look at people always highlighting the best parts of their life, it's easy to think that, you know, other people have it perfect, you know, and you don't, um, when, you know, that, that, obvi of, uh, that often is not the case. Mm -hmm. um, there's also uh, concerns over security. So, you know, we have cameras everywhere um, ourselves. You know, people used to fear Big Brother would be watching us, but now we're watching ourselves. Um, there was an app. 
But we are Big Brother, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I know there was an app. I'm gonna say Harvard students created it, but I could be wrong on the school. And essentially, they wanted to show some of the dangers of oversharing. So mm. they created this app where, let's say, you wanted to go out on a night. The app would be able to show you all the members of the opposite sex who are at this, or whoever your preferred sex was, who are at this establishment. Um, it would show you, you know, some tidbits about them, conversation starters, and just basic facts about them, their age, and so on. And it did this by kind of combining Facebook, Instagram, and Foursquare data to, to create a map. Mm -hmm. So they, and I mean, they, they eventually took it down uh, for obvious reasons, but it scared a lot of people that that was even possible. And yes, yeah, it, it is possible. <laughs> a lot, a yeah. lot is possible with the amount of data that we share. For so sure. we, you know, and we, I mean, even the apps themselves, Instagram, Facebook, we're putting a lot of trust in these companies to not misuse the data. Um, I worked at a very large dating website. That was my first job out the university with millions of members. And, you know, mm -hmm. I had a lot of access. To Are you allowed to say which one it is? Is it okay? Can uh, it was, <laughs> I can, though. It was, it was actually called Mate, Mate One. It's not one of the big three. It's okay. called Mate One. So... Um, but they were maybe one of the big five. Um, but they, I had access to a lot of information, you know, and I didn't misuse it. I'm think, I like to think I'm a good person, but it would have been so easy to use any of the millions of records in the database to steal someone's identity, to, mm -hmm. you know, try and, and stalk somebody. I mean, the data is there. And, you know, you are putting a lot of trust in humans to, to not misuse this data. So these are some of the, not only fears about technology, but legit concerns about technology. How do we kind of avoid this? Um, you know, I believe people are inherently good, so I'll continue to trust a lot of these companies with most of my data. Not all of it, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm, I, it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off between privacy and convenience in a lot of cases. And I think everyone has to make a decision for themselves how much they're willing to give up. So I, and I think young people growing up today will have a completely different concept of privacy than we do. So, you know, I might think, oh, I don't want to share where I'm going tonight, whereas they kind of think, if you don't do it, you're weird. Right. You know, um, the default mode for them will probably be public, and um, very little will be, will be private, and that won't bother them at all. Yeah, I wonder what that will do over time to the culture because there's even been like you know little news stories here and there of kids doing like the worst behavior in schools and they're <laughs> filming it and putting it on social media because it's not yeah. thought that yeah. maybe this isn't an appropriate thing to share doing doing it for clout as the young people would say like what does a 12 year old want with clout like on a personal level right because you're talking about all these different trade-offs that you have to navigate yeah. On a personal level, like how are you balancing these things as someone who is both creating the software and you're a user of different platforms and you're also concerned about privacy? How do you kind of walk that line in your own life? Oh yeah, so personally in my own life, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of my closest friends would probably tell you that I'm a Luddite, so I, I'm like an old man when it comes to technology. So even though I, I sit here and work on a computer all day and write code all day, I'm still a bit um, of a late adopter when it comes to, to the latest technology releases. So, you know, I, I probably tweeted 10 times in my life. Um, I might make two Instagram posts a year uh, and, and the occasional Facebook uh, rant when West Indies does something foolish and cricket. <laughs> but um, other other than that, um, I, I I look, I go on the platforms and I look, I just don't share as much. But I think that, that's just me personally. I'm not that much of a sharer, even in, in the physical world. So I think I've just adopted the same policies as the social. That being said, in terms of, um, we're not talking about like social media, but we're talking about uh, documents and passwords and that kind of thing. Um, I make heavy use of, of services like Dropbox um, to store a lot of, of both professional and personal files. And so I am putting some implicit trust in this service to not misuse my data. Um, I have documents in there, photos in there. I mean, 
nothing that if it got out would ruin my life, but definitely trade, you know, things I wouldn't want everyone to know. Um, but, but for me, the convenience of, for example, just before the Christmas break, I messed up my computer and I had to reinstall the operating system from scratch. But I was back up and running in like an hour or two because all my documents are on Dropbox. All my code is using Bitbucket or GitHub or other code revision services. And I can just pull that all down with the internet connection. So it, it, it definitely lets me operate um, in a kind of more convenient way. And I'm not scared to lose everything because it's only living on one centralized system. Yeah, so much different than it was even like 10, 15 years ago, where if your operating system died on you, it's like, oh, damn. If you didn't back yeah. stuff up to CDs or mm-hmm. flash drives, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, you, you were done. Um, and it happened to me before in my life. So I can compare the two instances and what a difference it makes now that we're kind of always connected. And, you know, a lot of people, one criticism a lot of people have is like, what would you do if the internet went down for a year? Or, you know, what would you do if this didn't work? But I kind of say, as we progress as species, we start to take certain things for granted because you could say the same thing about what if all electricity went out for a year or what if we didn't have planes anymore for a year? Like, these are technologies we just take for granted now. And the internet is kind of part of that discussion as well. It's not going to just go down for a year. If the internet goes down for a year, a lot more things are going to go down for a year. Yeah, and we have a lot bigger problems than individuals and their data. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, yeah, that, that's a criticism I don't necessarily subscribe to. But it comes down to personal preference. Some people don't mind sharing things. Some people do. And I think once you're informed about what happens to the data you, you put out there um, and then can make a decision on what's best for you, then I don't see a huge problem. Yeah, I think being informed is really key because it's one thing to be putting things out there, just assuming that everything's fine and nobody that you don't want to see it is going to see it. And another thing to have the awareness that, hey, something could happen in the long term or even in the short term that might be detrimental and then doing it, being aware of that risk. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, that's one of the stated goals of a group like Silicon Valley as well, is to help better inform the public of, you know, the risks and benefits of using various technologies. Um, So it is a role, I think, not only technical professionals, but those who are more versed and comfortable with these, you know, modern innovations. Um, It's a kind of duty they have to inform others um, on how these things work. Mm-hmm. So, do you have your eye on the next big problem that you're going to solve? <laughs> um, so, well, funny enough, my, it's, it's a bit of a diversion from what I'm currently doing. I'm also quite interested in, in transportation, mm-hmm. um, pub, public transportation specifically. Um, Lord, is I'm it ever in, needed? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you can ask. A few friends, I, I, I will randomly exclaim in the afternoon sometimes that I'm going to start a bus company and start running bus. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I, I'd, I'd want to do it with electric vehicles on a timetable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd want to offer month, week and month tickets and use technology to enhance the experience. Um, I know that I would definitely encounter hurdles that hasn't stopped me in the past, but, you know, the bus and taxi associations are quite powerful in this country. So um, there would be some challenges, but the idea would be to work with them to come up with a better solution for everybody. Um, But taking that a step further um, and looking at regionalism, which I think you asked me earlier, some of the challenges of being an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe one of the biggest challenges of doing something from Antigua is the, the size of the population the fact that you can't achieve economies of scale within your own country. Right. Um, if, if you're a company starting in Silicon Valley, if you can even get 5% of America, well, that's even a high number. If you can even get mm-hmm. 0.5% of Americans to use your app, you have a user base of like 4 million people. Yeah. And using 4 million people as your base, you can then grow and expand and scale exponentially. 
in Antigua, if you had every man, woman, and child using your, your platform as a customer, even you know, down to a one-year-old baby, you'd still only have 100,000 customers. And using that as a base, it's very difficult to then scale further afield. So, you know, when launching a business, at least in this space, you can't really just look at Antigua. You have to be thinking at the very least regional and probably globally. Um, but focusing on the regional, tighter integration um, would absolutely make entrepreneurship easier. Um, and so combining the passion for transportation with regionalization, one of the future tasks I'd like to solve is inter-island travel. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not even thinking to the skies. I'm thinking to, that we have to create. I've team up with some mechanical or, uh, or aeronautic engineers to create some kind of marine vessel that can move quickly, cheaply, and greenly between the islands and allow us to grow tighter as a result. Yeah, that would really be the dream because it's one thing to have on paper, like we're this Caricom community and there's free movement of people, but I mean, the movement of people between the islands is anything but free. <laughs> yeah, if, it, if it's going to cost you as much to go to Barbados as it is to New York, you're just going to go to New York. Exactly. And a lot of, and, and not to mention visa, like when people want to travel even further abroad, they have to first go. Mm-hmm. you know, interregionally and then pay twice as much to, to, to go to their final destination. It's a mess. It's honestly a mess. And yeah, like you say, it can exist on paper all at once, but the things that are actually going to make it a reality is freer movement of people between islands and also coming together closer culturally in terms of maybe shared media, shared businesses, um, shared agriculture and that type of thing. We kind of talked a lot about the challenges and stuff, but what would you say is the most fun part of being an entrepreneur in the Caribbean? Well, for one, there's, there's not a lot of people doing it. And so you feel honestly like you're making a big difference. You know, we've been at this, I mean, ticketing officially launched at the start of 2016. So this is, I guess, the beginning of our fifth year. But we went from, you know, not even knowing how we were going to accept money to kind of hearing, um, you know, people just talk about the app when you're in the supermarket, not even knowing who you are. And the fact that you can get to, to that point in such a short time, it feels like you're making quite a significant change and it makes you excited for what mm-hmm. else you can do if you put your mind to it, you know. Um, I didn't grow up wanting to sell event tickets, but it served as a kind of template for how you can turn an idea into reality and, you know, going forward, make more meaningful difference. Um, again, I, I like a challenge and I, I found it fun to, to overcome the challenges that we have overcome. Um, it's great every time, you know, we, we hire staff for events. Um, it feels amazing every time you can pay someone some money um, and just create, no matter how small of a job. We have some interns who've gone on now to, to, to get jobs of their own elsewhere, um, which is also, uh, feels, it feels very satisfying to yeah. kind of, you know, when, when I came back, um, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do this here. It was kind of like, I said, I'll give it a couple of years and see. And now that I really can, I'm trying to give that opportunity to or help give other people that opportunity uh, who would want to do it. So I think that's the most satisfying part is kind of seeing the difference that even a small effort can make here. Yeah. And I got to say, you guys are making a big impact in Antigua and beyond too, because I see Silicon Dadley being featured in even regional publications. So that's really cool. Yeah, and um, that's definitely a momentum we want to keep up. Um, you know, I think in this talk, we kind you could kind of see what the cornerstones of, of what we're trying to do. It's, it's data, it's regionalism, it's, you know, helping out sustainability, these types of things. Um, and also, you know, I guess, for me, I'm, I'm very interested in what I call the horizontal expansion of technology rather than the vertical. So what I call vertical is, you know, every year we got to bring out a new iPhone and slightly improve the camera, do a different face ID. And it's cool, don't get me wrong. I like cool new features as much as the next person, but they're not really essential. They're just kind of incrementally improving an already good experience. Yeah. Where the horizontal expansion of technology is kind of taking what already exists, but allowing it to help more individuals. 
to allow more people to benefit from what's already there. And, you know, this is a greater region as any to start in that mission. Um, and the lessons learned here could hopefully be applied to other developing regions around the world. Because the, the big tech companies are, not, are going to ignore certain regions. Um, the Caribbean is not worth it to them, right? Even if you add up the entire English-speaking Caribbean, you get just under 5 million people. On the scales that they're thinking, it's just not worth the resources. So there's always going to be a hole here if we leave it to them to solve our problems. And so we have to solve our own problems. And I think that's, that's kind of what I find amazing about working in the region, coming back here. And that's what kind of motivates me to get up in the morning. I love it. We are the ones who have to solve our own problems because nobody's coming to rescue us from the outside. That's right. Awesome. Well, just in closing here, can you please tell us where we can stay in touch with you, with your various businesses? And, well, I know that you personally are not much of a poster, <laughs> but <laughs> give us the plug for your social media. Sure. So it's spend.james on Facebook. On Instagram, I am at Spendgenuity, like ingenuity, but put <laughs> S-V-E instead of the I. Very um, on, <laughs> on Twitter, I am at Dadlian. Um, I don't really post any of these things, but follow me. And maybe if I have more followers, I'll feel pressured to actually share something. Um, you can find ticketing um, as well on all social media as at ticketing events. Um, and we are also at ticketingevents.co uh, is our website. Um, best way is to just download our app where we try to keep our users informed there. We're actually uh, looking to relaunch our entire platform over the next two to three months. So it's an exciting time to become mm-hmm. a user. Uh, rolling out a lot of new features. And um, so, yeah, um, you can check us out there. Uh, Silicon Dadly, um, we have a Facebook page, Silicon Dadly. Uh, the primary means that we communicate though is a WhatsApp group. So if anyone is interested in tech, I guess maybe through you, through the podcast, they can get in touch with me and I'll add them to the WhatsApp group. Thank you so much, Ben. This has been a really great chat and good luck in all your future endeavors. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It was a pleasure talking to you. for listening to this episode of Grassroots Radio. If you enjoyed the conversation, show some love and help spread the word. You can do that by subscribing on Apple, Google, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Already subscribed? Consider leaving a five-star review. It helps other people find the show. If you have an idea for someone you want to see featured or a topic you want us to cover, let us know. DM us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at grassrootsANU or email us at thenewgrassroots at gmail.com. For more about NGR, visit us at thenewgrassroots.com. Until next time, this is... Grassroots Radio.